0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Good morning, church. There is a disclaimer on today's sermon, but I want to add a couple more because I always like to do that. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs 5. That's not part of the disclaimer, but you might turn there and realize why. Um, first disclaimer is this. This is a, uh, a, uh, a teaching that is a part of an ongoing teaching on sex and sexuality that we've been having over the past five years, okay? So what I mean when I say that is, uh, what I mean by that is, if you are looking for the, oh, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll be using it today, um, and you can get one. What I mean when I say that it's an, a part of an ongoing teaching teaching or conversation over the last five years is that uh, I can't completely teach on sex and sexuality from one place in the Bible or in one sermon in the Bible. So I will say things this morning that you wish I had said more of or less of or like, why didn't you say this? Why didn't you say that? Um, Please don't email me uh, or don't come up and talk to me about it. Just go to our website and listen to about, I don't know, 10 different sermons we've given on this topic, and if after listening to all those, you still have questions, please come talk to me, because this is an extensive, I hope one day to be able to write a book for this church on all this stuff, but that day's not yet, and so it's a part of an ongoing thing, and every single time we're in a new book, there's a dis- different aspect to teach on. So when we were in Genesis, we taught on, on one aspect of it. When we were in 1 Corinthians, we taught on a different one. When we were in the book of Mark, we taught on a different one, and now that we're in Proverbs, we'll teach on yet another one. The other disclaimer is that I would like you, if you can, to pay attention to the entire sermon. Um, If you can listen to the whole thing in its entirety, not just the intro or the end or the beginning or whatever, but the whole thing, because this one's a bit different. We're approaching, I'm approaching this uh, subject today differently than I ever have before. Um, A bit more biblical slash philosophical than we've ever done. Since we're in wisdom, I think it's fitting. Maybe even a little more poetic than we ever have before. And I think it's fitting because we're in wisdom literature. So, if you have a Bible, please turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Let me read from verses 1 through 21, and we'll get started. Today, the sermon is called A Wisdom of Sexuality. Uh, Verse 1 in chapter 5, Proverbs. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion, and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to the path far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others, and your dignity to the one who is cruel, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil and enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers, nor turn my ear to my instructors, And and I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water from your own cistern running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow into the streets, your streams of water into the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. It's God's word. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity, the ear that um, so many people uh, are giving to uh, your word this morning. It's it's a privilege to stand here, God, and it's really humbling and scary at the same time to, to talk about such a subject um, in California in San Francisco, with all these people, and I ask God for Your grace. Um, we're on holy ground here, Lord, and I, I ask, Lord, that You would lead us, that You would lead us in the way everlasting. That something would happen in our minds and our hearts, where we get a larger picture of what's going on with sex and sexuality today. So, Lord, would You please uh, anoint me? What may the things of God resonate deep in our being, and the things that are for me may they fall away. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, we've been in the book of Proverbs for some time now, and been sitting under the sages of old, trying to get and gain wisdom. That's what we've been doing in this book on, in Proverbs. And we've said that wisdom is the key to living life rightly. We've said that rightly ordered lives comes and flows out of wisdom. Wisdom is the path of the good life. This is what we've said over the last several weeks that the path of wisdom, when you're walking on the path of wisdom, that path isn't necessarily a destination to the good life, but that path in and of itself is the good life. So when you're on the path of wisdom, you are living the good life. The good life in the book of Proverbs isn't simply a destination. In wisdom literature, wisdom uh, literature says that, that the good life isn't a destination. It's a path. It's something that you walk on. It's something that you live on. Now, this is important, especially in today's topic, because the sages use, the sage uses this imagery of lot, a lot of wisdom being a path, wisdom walking along a path, being the good life. And today I want to talk about our wisdom and our sexuality, or wisdom in our sexuality. And what I'll do is I'm going to open with a quote. I'll read quite a bit of quotes today. I'll open from a quote from one of my favorite books on spirituality. Actually, if you want a way better version of this sermon I'm giving, then buy this book by Ronald Roheiser and read his chapter on sexuality. It's it's everything I probably want to say during this sermon. He says it way better, but here you are and here I am, so I'll I'll just read it. (laughs) He says this. Sexuality lies at the center of the spiritual life. A healthy sexuality is the single most powerful vehicle there is to lead us into selflessness and joy. Just as unhealthy sexuality helps constellate selfishness and unhappiness and and does nothing else. We will be happy in this life depending upon whether or not we have a healthy sexuality. One of the fundamental tasks of spirituality, therefore, is to help us to understand and channel our sexuality correctly. This is, this however, is no easy task. Sexuality is such a powerful fire that it is not always easy to channel, channel it in life-giving ways. Its very, its very power, and it's the most powerful force on the planet, makes it a force not just for formidable love, life, and blessing, but also for the worst hate, death, and destruction imaginable. Sex is responsible for most of the ecstasies that occur on the planet, but is also responsible for lots of murders and suicides. It is the most powerful of fires, the best of all fires, the most dangerous of all fires, and and the fire which ultimately lies at the base of everything, including the spiritual life. Let's sit for that. Let's sit with that for a second. There's probably like a million things running through your head right now as you listen to that. Sexuality is the center of the spiritual life. If sexuality is the center of our spiritual life, what do we do with our sexuality? We can't ignore our sexuality. We can't repress our sexuality. That would be wrong. That would be inhuman. It would be unspiritual to repress our sexuality. Nor can we give our sexuality freedom to do whatever it feels like, whenever it wants to. This is what the sexual liberation, which had its epicenter in San Francisco, and I believe still does, has tried to do over the years, over the centuries. See, a sexuality without limits, without consequence, without taboos, that's what sexual liberation tries to do. But sexuality without limits is like a life without limits. It will collapse under the weight of its own, way, its own self-centeredness like a black hole. If we give no limits to our sexuality, it will collapse under the weight of its own self-centeredness. So what we're saying is, in order to have a health- health in our sexuality or a healthy sexuality, we can either repress our sexuality nor liberate our sexuality. But we must understand how to channel it correctly. How do we channel our sexuality correctly? What we're saying, I guess, is that we need wisdom in our sexuality. And this is where we'll turn to Proverbs to get that wisdom. Now, let me say something, a a quick note on Proverbs. If you were noticing as I was reading Proverbs 5, the book was written to be used as a training manual for an all-boys school. So this is why it's written from a boy's perspective. This is why the book consistently evaluates women through the eyes of men and never man through the eyes of women. In its lectures, the father always addresses his son and he never addresses his daughter. It's a book written for young boys, and that's okay, we can't get mad at that. I heard one preacher say, Uh, that it's like coming across a Boy Scout manual and getting mad because it never dresses girls. It's like, well, it's a Boy Scout manual. It's not a Girl Scout manual. But since Proverbs is in the canon of our Bibles, it's for all of us. So as we read it today in its application, we can all extract biblical wisdom for all of us from it. So look at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 tell the hearer to listen, to pay attention, to open your ears your hearts to this very powerful and important word about sexuality. And it says this in verse three. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Underline that in your Bible. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. She has no thought To the way of life. The way of life in Proverbs is the way of wisdom, the way of the good life. She gives no thought to a good life. She gives no thought to a wise life. She gives no thought to the kind of life that has in it built in character. She gives no thought for that. This woman, this adulterous woman, is the personification of sexual immorality that is, sex outside of the way it's supposed to be. Now, a good question to ask here is what is sex supposed to be? What is sex supposed to be? What does sex even mean? Ronald Roheiser writes in his book, the word sex, now listen here, this gets a little philosophical, but listen. The word sex has a Latin root that means literally to cut off, to sever, to amputate, to disconnect from the whole. To be sexed, therefore, literally means to be cut off, to be severed, to be, to be amputated from the hole. So if you were a branch and, it was, and you were cut from the tree, you would be sexed. You would be cut off from the tree. If a branch is connected to the tree and it's cut off, that branch you can say is sexed. And if the branch woke up the next day on the ground, let's imagine, severed, cut off, disconnected from the tree, a lonely piece of wood, which was once part of this great whole organism, you can say that that branch was sexed, cut off. Now, that branch would wake up knowing, intuitively, knowing internally. It would know with every cell in its being that if it wants to continue living, that if it wants to produce flowers and bear fruit, it must somehow reconnect itself to the tree. Are you with me right now? Now, what is the great interconnectedness that we were all once connected to? The Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2, the answer to that is everything. We were connected to everything. We were connected to one another. We were connected to God. We were connected to our environment. Humanity was connected with each other, with God, with the environment. The words that the scriptures use is the word what? What? Shalom. You know this, everyone's really timid right now. I understand we're talking about sex. (laughs) Perfect wholeness. Now, listen, our strong desire for sex, our very strong desire for sex, especially once we reach puberty, is our painful awareness that every cell of our our body, our psyche, our soul is sexed. Our strong desire for sex is because somewhere deep within us, we know we have been cut off. Sex in its basic form is the dimension of our awareness, most times even subconscious awareness, that we have been cut off, that we are alone in the world. That's the the ultimate primal desire for sex. Sex. The ultimate primal desire for sexuality is knowing that we have been cut off from this great organism that is God, that is one another, that is our world. We have been cut off, and we want so badly to reconnect. Secular philosopher, I'd say atheist, but I believe in his writing. He's turning more agnostic, and I eventually have belief that he'll find a a way back into Christianity, but whatever. Secular philosopher Alain de Bouton even recognizes this when he writes that primal sex is overcoming basic isolation. So he, write, he, he, he founded the School of Life, which is basically like what old school philosophers used to do. They would bring people into their school and teach them a way of living. He's kind of doing that same thing, and he's writing small little books about everything that pertains to human life and giving a philosophical approach on it, and he writes one on sex. And in there, he starts the book the same way Ronald Roheiser does. He starts the book by saying, we're all disconnected, and we all want reconnection. And I'll read a section of it. He says this. He says, this isolation that we feel is something we all become acquainted with after the end of childhood. And he writes this just beautifully. He says, if we're lucky, we we begin life comfortably enough on this earth in a state of close and physical and emotional union with a devoted caregiver. We lie naked on her skin. We can hear her heartbeat. We can see the delight in her eyes as she watches us do nothing more accomplished than blow a saliva bubble. <laughs> in other words, than merely exist. We can bang our spoon against the table and inspire uproarious laughter. Our fingers are tickled, and the fine hairs of our head are stroked, smelt, and kissed. We don't even have to speak. Our needs are carefully interpreted. The breast is there whenever we want it. Then gradually comes the fall. The nipple is taken away. We are blithely induced to move on to rice and dry morsels of chicken. Our body either ceases to please or can no longer be so casually displayed. We grow ashamed of our particularities. Ever-expanding areas of our outer selves are forbidden to be touched by others. It begins with the genitals, then spreads to encompass the stomach, the back of the neck, the ears, and the armpits, until we are... All we are allowed to do is occasionally give someone a hug, a handshake, or bestow or receive a peck on the cheek. The sign of others' satisfaction in our existence declines, and their enthusiasm begins to be linked to our performance. It is what we do rather than what we are that is now to interest of them. Our teachers, once so encouraging about our smudgy drawings of ladybirds, and our scrawls depicting flags of the world, seem to take pleasure only in our exam results. Well-meaning individuals brutally suggest that perhaps it is time for us to start earning some money of our own. And society is kind or unkind to us chiefly according to how successful we turn out to be doing just that. We begin to have to monitor what we say and how we look. There are aspects of our appearance that revolt and terrify us and that we feel we have to hide from others by spending money on clothes and haircuts. We grow into clumsy, heavy-footed, shameful, anxious creatures. We become adults definitively expelled from paradise. Do you notice all the overtones he keeps putting in there from Genesis? Deep inside, we never quite forget the needs with with which we were born. To be accepted as we are, without regard to our, our deeds, to be loved through the medium of our body, to be enclosed in another's arms, to occasion delight with the smell of our skin. All of these needs inspiring our relentless and passionately idealistic quest for someone to kiss and to sleep with. What Elaine Debouton is saying is that we are sexed, and that is how we wake up in the world. And for a short while, our caregivers provide that connectedness. If we are so so fortunate, our caregivers provide that connectedness, that unconditional human touch and love. But we are longing to be unsexed. Once we hit that age when everything turns outward, we're no longer turned inward towards the breast, we're no longer inward towards our moms, towards our caregivers. We are pointed outward toward the world. We are to make our way out there and all we want is to be connected. All we want in life is to be reconnected. All we want is to be be brought back into paradise, to be brought back into Shalom. And part of this experience is the experience of being human. It is the human, ex- it's the human condition, and it's exceedingly painful. This sexuality and sex is exceedingly painful. The loneliness it brings, the irrational longing it brings, the madness that is our sexuality, the want to be with someone, sometimes more than someone, the longing to be with everyone. If this is true about sex, and it is, then we can see that our sexuality is more than simply having sex. Our sexuality is more than simply having sex. It is important, if we desire to be wise about sex, it is important that we know the difference between having sex and having a sexuality. Church, if we want to grow in the wisdom of sexuality, we need to understand there is a difference between having sex and having a sexuality. I think our, our culture tries to combine the two. You have a sexuality, therefore you have sex. That is not true, That is even not, not even true philosophically. S- having sex and sexuality are two different things. See, we started by saying that we cannot be a whole being without having healthy, a healthy sexuality. Now you might have heard that as saying, unless you're having good sex, you cannot be fully human. You might have heard that when I, when I read that first quote. That's why I want to sit with it for a while. Like, what comes up in your mind? Some of you who are not having sex right now, like, okay, he's going to tell me how I have to, like, get married to have sex to be fulfilled as a human. And so he's going to talk about healthy sexuality in the terms of, like, being married, going to get married. But having sex and having a healthy sexuality are different. And we cannot, we must know the difference between these two. See, this is where it starts. We think that what it means to be sexual means to be having sex so if i'm a sexual being that means i'm having sex and this is a tragic reduction sexuality which we all have is the, is the desire sexuality which we all have is the desire for love sexuality is the desire for communion For community, for friendship, for family, for affection, for wholeness, consummation, creativity, self-perpetuation, joy, delight, humor, and self-transcendence. This is what a sexuality or having a sexuality means. It means this, to have all those things because it's not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone. That's a quote from Genesis. It says, it's not good for man to be alone. And when God said that, he was saying that to the man, but he meant it for every man. Every woman, every child, every animal, every insect, every plant, every atom, every molecule in the entire universe. You study every single field and you will know that it's not good to be alone. And this is what God was saying over all his creation. At the end of creation, it's not good to be alone. Sexuality is this interconnectedness. Sex is the energy inside of us that works incessantly against our being alone. Sex is the energy inside us that works incessantly against our being alone. Now understanding that, do you see why having sex is so powerful? Having sex, the act of sex, the act of making love, do you see why that's so powerful? See, having sex is not the whole of sexuality, but it's probably God's greatest gift to the planet and offers to humanity the most immediate opportunity for genuine intimacy. When you're having sex and experiencing orgasm with another human, you feel, in probably one of the most insane ways available this side of heaven, unsexed. When you're with another human, completely naked, completely exposed, experiencing sex, you feel at that moment, above everything else, unsexed. You feel undislocated. You feel unalone. You feel completely connected. That is why the scriptures liken sexual language to the oneness between the sexes to describe our ultimate union with God. It adopts the sexual language for our union with God. That's insane how lofty, how majestic sex is talked about in Scripture. Proverbs 30 says this about sex. Now, it's poetic language. You guys might understand poetic language, and it says this. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. That's like a poetic way of saying two. No, three. Like It's just like, I don't know, a great poetic way of saying, no, I have more. Three things I don't understand. No, no, four things I don't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Wow, these are images. The eagle, the snake, the ship. All of these beautiful images are images of of one being coming into, penetrating the realm of another being. It's poetic, it's beautiful, it's majestic. The ship sails, it propels its way in and through the high seas. The eagle soars, it rides, it glides through the air, skyrockets in flight. No, that's a really bad (laughs) analogy, but kind of, I think, what he was getting at in that song. Sorry, I had to cut the tension. It was getting a little weird in here. Um, And then the snake. Now, listen. I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that one, and I don't want to understand that one. (laughs) So I'm going to move on. I know the first two, I don't know the middle one, I don't get it. (laughs) This is an erotic poem. It's an erotic poem about sexual oneness. The Bible talks at length about the beauty and the power of sex. Look at verse 15 through 19 in Proverbs 5, we read it just a second ago. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. You go into a well. Wells were dug in holes. It's saying, drink water from your, it's speaking to the man. Drink water from your own cistern. It's speaking of the female anatomy. Should your springs overflow into the streets, your streams of water in the public square? Streams and and springs came up out of the ground. This is speaking of the male anatomy. This is very graphic. Probably ruin this proverb forever for you. (laughs) I don't like that proverb anymore. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, speaking of like the man. May your fountains be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be drunk with her love. May you be drunk with the love of your spouse. The Bible talks gloriously about sex. The Bible talks majestically about sex. About sex. However, we must avoid the popular contemporary view that having sex somehow can carry all the things that sexuality is supposed to carry. And you need to hear this. We cannot, even in the church, because the church has this horrible thing about wait to have sex, and when you get when you get married, it's gonna be amazing. And then no one talks about afterwards. Is it amazing? No one's like, nah, it's not that amazing. No one says that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, no one says that. (laughs) Got even more awkward. We connect. We connect sexuality to having sex. So we think that as soon as I'm married and I get to have sex, I am sexually complete, I'm sexually whole, but that's not what sexuality means. That's not what sexuality means. Sexuality is about love, community, communion, family, friendship, affection, creativity, joy, delight, humor, and self-transcendence in our lives. Meaning, you can have a lot of sex and still lack all of those things. You can have a lot of sex. You might be here this morning and you are even in what you could be a Christian or not, I don't whatever. You just have a lot of sex. And you know you're lacking all of those things. You are lacking in your life creativity and joy and delight and humor and family and friendship, and you think that sex, having sex, is gonna give you all that, and it never, ever does. However, someone who is celibate can have all of those things in abundance. Someone who is not having sex, can have such a, a healthy sexuality that they have love and community and communion and family and friendship and affection and creativity and joy and delight and humor and self-transcendence in spades. They're not having sex at all. That is something no one will tell you. That is something that our culture doesn't even know what to do with. Like, no, no, that's not what it, no, sex is tied to all those things. No, it's not. Your sexuality is, and your sexuality is something different than having sex. It says, while having sex should never be denigrated and seen as something that is not spiritual or important, it should not not be asked all by itself to be responsible for community, friendship, family, and delight within our lives. Can you please listen to that? Though you should never say that having sex the way that God has designed sex is not awesome, well, you cannot put to bear on the act of sex, having sex, all the things that it's not responsible for. We should not undervalue sex, and we should not overvalue sex. Last week, I was in Boston visiting our good friend Al, Pastor Al, who planted Reality Boston, and we were at lunch on, I believe, Boylston Street, or something like that. And it's a nice, warm uh, Boston day, beautiful outside. We're eating outside, and, we're, and, and everyone wants to eat outside, so the chairs and tables are really, really close together, and we're sitting behind someone, and they were a group of uh, friends uh, two guys, two girls, or something like that. Three guys, two, two girls, I don't know, something like that. And they were right behind us, and they were just chatting, they were talking, and they were day drinking, and getting crazy. And um, Al and I were having a conversation about what, what, what's going on in life and in Boston, and all this other stuff. And I wasn't, necessarily, I wasn't listening. I don't like listening to other people's conversation, but she said this loudly. And she said the word sex. And because I'm studying about this, I'm like, oh, I want, overheard, you know, like I wanted to, like, want to know. <laughs> and so she says this She said, oh my gosh, last night I needed sex so bad. And so I called up so and so, and it was the worst mistake of my life. And and so they were, I mean, they were in like an in depth conversation about how this girl and all her friends had something to say. Well, that was dumb. Well, there's an ex boyfriend. Well, those guys are losers. I mean, whatever. And, and she, they were saying all this stuff, trying to give her advice. And she's like, it was just, and she couldn't let it go. It was just so bad. I, I regret it so much, but I needed sex. And I wanted to turn around and say, what you were looking for was not that. What you were looking for last night was this, like community. You were looking for this. I didn't, though. <laughs> I mean, Al and I were on appetizers, and that one had to sat there, through a whole meal, like her looking at me. I don't know. I didn't want to do it. <laughs> but you might have been there. You know, like, I need sex. You don't need sex. That's not, what you're, that's, what you, that's not what you need. That's not what you're longing for. What you're longing for is to be unsexed. What you're longing for is to be Connected. What you're longing for is to be brought back in to shalom. What you're longing for is like this connectedness of souls with another person. That's what, you, that's what you're really longing for. And that other thing is a cheap, gosh, a cheap mistake, a cheap substitute. Proverbs 5 verse 3 says, For the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But at the end, it's, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. The sage warns against sex outside the way God created it to be here. And the warning here is how appealing sex can be, how, like it's dripping honey. It looks so good. It looks so sweet. It looks so perfect. It's almost intoxicating by looking at it. While sex is appealing, it's almost impossible to tell that that honey dripping from the lips of sexual immorality is a temptation that will kill you. No one thinks honey is going to kill you. And you look at honey and go, that's sweet. That can't be bad. And you forget that this honey is sweet, but the bee has a sting, and that sting is a sting of death. This honey is sweet, but you eat it and it turns bitter. But also it says the speech of sexual temptation is smoother than oil. The speech of it. I like how the writer in Wisdom ties the speech of it because there's a language, a sexual language, a sexual temptation, things that we tell ourselves. Oil in the Old Testament was, was healing. Oil was a picture of healing. Physical healing, external healing, and internal healing. Oil was used, Olive oil was used to cook. It was used for religious ceremony, for anointing. It was used as medicine both inside the body and topically. Oil meant gladness. Oil meant prosperity. This is the smooth talk that having sex tries to give us. It says this it will heal you. Having sex will heal all your deepest longings, it will heal all your loneliness, it will bring gladness to you, it it will relieve your need to be accepted, to be held, to be naked, to be not alone. It will heal you, it'll bring you gladness but it's as sharp as a double-edged sword. Now, you might not believe me right now. You're here, you, were, you just started coming to this community, and you just don't believe me. You might think, well, I'm trying to take something as modern as sex and our issues surrounding sex, that the things that we're facing with sexuality today, and apply a 3,000-year-old book, and it's not quite working. That's, you might be thinking, "There, like, hey, okay, you're doing this, okay? But this book is really old. We have way more modern sensibilities about sexuality now. Like, I, I think what you're doing isn't working." Well, allow me then to point out an irony. And the irony is this: we live in a culture today that says sex should be liberated from its ancient taboos, that sex can be, should be casual, that sex is not as big of a deal as conservative preachers like myself make it out to be. That's what our culture says. That's what you might be saying. Well, the same culture that is affirming that sex can be casual is at the same time a culture that is recognizing, for the first time, probably our first time in history, the incredible devastation of soul that occurs when someone is sexually violated. A bill just been introduced called the Affirmative Consent for Sex on College Campuses. They're trying to pass this bill because the amount of rape that happens on college campuses? See, our culture does not recognize the power that sex has and how it can destroy. Our culture actually does recognize, I apologize, does recognize the power that sex has and how it can destroy our lives when used wrongly. But on the other hand, it says it's casual. It can be casual. It can be whatever. But on the other hand, but it can destroy. It can destroy life. We have to put laws in And 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 rules around it. Even on college campuses, we have to make mutual consent. You can't just sleep with someone when they're passed out. You can't do that. We know that sex is both devastating, but we think it can be casual. I think the devastating part of sexuality is progress for our culture. But I would say that it's not so much about consent as the power that sex has. Now, if you still don't believe me, you're like, okay, that was good, whatever. You still don't believe me. Allow me to quote one of your own prophets, Louis C.K., Louis CK, Louis C.K. was recently on Fresh Air with, with Terry Gross, and he did his interview, and he's just a really fun guy to listen to um, in certain situations, and, uh, and, and Terry st- starts asking uh, Louis C.K. about like, the, the, the nightlife of a comedian and traveling all the time, and you like, must have girls just like, banging on your door now because like, you're popular and you're cute, whatever, and Louis C.K. starts talking about sex. And he says this, he says, and I'm just going to read from the, the transcript, he says, I think every, no, almost every single time I've had sex with someone for the first time, I should have waited. Pretty much 100% of the time, I should have waited a little. It never hurts. You get two benefits. One, you realize you didn't want to, after all, and there's something about her that, you know, didn't, you didn't want to get that intimate. Or, secondly, you get more fond of each other, and there's more to connect about if you wait. And this is where he gets... So, Then um, what happens after this, uh, Terry Gross starts ribbing him about, oh, you're starting to sound like a dad now. He goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, you're you're kind of sounding like, you know, you're, you're trying to prepare your kids for the speech you're going to give to them later on when they grow up. And he says, you know what parents, parents need to tell your kid, when you have sex, you're just going to feel crappy. That's what he says. He says, you're going to feel crappy. And he says this. This word gets a little more philosophical. It's just not worth it. Just wait. It's a very big deal to be naked in a room with another human being. To be naked in a bed with another person, that is so intimate. That's such a big deal. And when you don't treat it like a big deal, you confronted with how big a deal it is as a surprise when you, you know, you're when the urge is over that got you there. So yeah, it took me, you know, about a thousand repetitions of that mistake to sort, to sort of start to think of it as one, which I think is probably pretty common. One of your own prophets. Having s- he goes, two people naked together? That is so intimate. Do you even know what that is? Do you know how powerful that is? You should wait. He goes, you need to tell people this. He goes, I've done it however many times, and I've, I look back and go, man, I, should've, I, should've I should have learned. I want my old wise me to tell my young me. It's a big deal. Having sex is ju- not just like any other thing. Sex, the scriptures teach outside of its created order, is a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Sex outside of the way that God designed it cuts both soul and body. But allow me to say something that that might actually come as a bit of a shock. Maybe even mess up your idea of sex in marriage a bit. Sex inside marriage does not guarantee the promise of being unsexed. Sex inside of marriage does not guarantee the promise of being unsexed. When God, when it said that they were both naked and unashamed, that was Genesis chapter 2 before the fall. See, you can get married and have sex, but that doesn't mean you have become a fully matured sexual being. You can get married and have a lot of sex and still not have come into full sexual maturity. Now I want to read a page from this book by Rolheiser because I cannot, though I've tried to say it better myself, I cannot say it better than this. So I'm just going to read it to you. So bear with me. I'll read this, I'll share a scripture, and then we'll be done, I promise. You with me? Okay. How then might a Christian define sexuality, he writes. This is under the heading, A Christian Definition of Sexuality. Sexuality is a beautiful, good, extremely powerful, sacred energy given to us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an irrepressible, irrepressible urge to overcome our incompleteness, to move toward unity and consummation with that which is beyond us. It is also the pulse to celebrate, to give and receive delight, to find our way back to the Garden of Eden where we can be naked, shameless, and without worry and work as we make love in the moonlight." Ultimately, though, all these hungers in their full maturity culminate in one thing. They want to make us co-creators with God. Listen to that. I'll read that again. Ultimately, though, all these hungers for sexuality in their full maturity as a sexual being culminate in one thing. All sexuality, Rollheiser argues, culminates in one thing. To want to make us co-creators with God. Mothers and fathers... Artisans and creators, big brothers and big sisters, nurses and healers, teachers and counselors, farmers and producers, administrators and community builders, co-responsible with God for the planet, standing with God and smiling at the, and, the blessing, and blessing the world. Given that definition, we see that sexuality in its mature bloom does not necessarily look like the love scenes, perfect bodies, perfect emotion, perfect light in a Hollywood movie. What does sexuality in full bloom look like? And he writes, when you see a young mother so beaming with delight at her own child, for that moment, that for that moment all selfishness within her is given way to the sheer joy of seeing her child happy, you are seeing sexuality in a mature bloom. When you see a grandfather so proud of his grandson who has just received his diploma that for that moment his spirit is only compassion, altruism, and joy, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see an artist, after long frustration, look with satisfaction on the work she has completed that everything else for a moment is blotted out, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see a young man, cold, wet, but happy to have been of service, standing on a dock where he has carried the unconscious body of a child he has just saved from drowning, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see someone throw back his His or her head in genuine laughter, caught off guard by the surprise of joy itself, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see an elderly nun who, never having slept with a man, been married or given birth to a child, has through years of selfless service become a person whose very compassion gives her a mischievous smile, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see a community gathered around a grave, making peace with tragedy and consoling each other so that life can go on, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see an elderly husband and a wife who after nearly half a century of marriage have made such peace with each other's humanity that they now can quietly share a bowl of soup, content just to know that the the other is there, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see a table surrounded by family laughing, arguing, and sharing life with each other, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see Mother Teresa dressed, dressing the wounds of a street person in Calcutta or Oscar Romeo uh, Romero give his life in defense of the poor, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see any person, man, woman, or child, who in a moment of service, affection, love, friendship, creativity, joy, or compassion is for that moment, so caught up in what is beyond him or her that for that instant, his or her separateness from others is overcome, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see God having just created the earth we just been seeing Jesus baptized in the Jordan River, look down on what he, has, he had just happened and say, "It is good, and this I take delight." You are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. And the last paragraph is on the screen: Sexuality is not simply about finding a lover or even finding a friend. It is about overcoming separateness, by giving life and blessing it. Thus, in its maturity, sexuality is about giving oneself over to community. Friendship, family, service, creativity, humor, delight, and martyrdom. So that with God, we can help bring life into the world. Having sex, by that definition, is a powerful proxy. Sometimes a cheap substitute for the real thing that God is in after us. He wants us to be unsexed. He wants us to be connected. Now, I know that some of you are thinking on this point. You're thinking this. Okay. That was fairly compelling. That might help me get through this weekend. But I want to be married. I want to have sex. I want to be naked and unashamed with someone. And you might be thinking that. When we come to the end of any sexual talk or teaching or lecture, That's normally the sentiment in the room. Yes, that is awesome, but I want to have it. That is awesome, but I want to be married. That is awesome, but I want that connectedness with another human person. Allow me, as we close, to speak to the Jesus followers in this room. And the reason why I say let me speak to the Jesus followers in this room is that because unless you are a follower of Jesus, this might not make sense to anyone else. Why do you think, why do you think that you can have everything that you want in this life now? Why do you think that every longing in your heart is to be satisfied in this life? Where does that come from? Why do you think if I have this longing, then then I should be able to have it? Where does that come from? What makes you think that you can have it in this life? Why do you think that you can experience everything there is that God has created good in this life now? Christian, we do not get everything we desire in this life. Our story is a different story. The Christian story looks ahead. The Christian story has its hope that's beyond this life. It assumes that there are a lot of this life that we will live unfulfilled physically. It says loudly to you and to I, to the Christian world, this is not all there is. Stop looking for everything in this life. You might have this holy longing for something your whole life that does not mean that you are less than human, that you are less than complete, that you are less than living the good life. And you're probably thinking right now, well, that's easy for you to say. It is not easy for me to say. This is not easy for me to say. There are things that I want in this life that I may never, ever, ever get. But this life is not all there is. And if you're in here and your just heart is so empty, your heart is so empty, you're like, I have this longing so deep in my heart that it's made its way to my stomach, I will tell you, as a follower of Jesus, you don't get everything you want. Our hope is beyond this life. When we become a people that live life like what we see and what we get here is all that matters, we become a people that the Bible does not know anything of. We become a people that's foreign to the New Testament, that's foreign to the Old Testament. That's foreign to the people of God who've wandered. That's foreign to the people of God who live in exile in the New Testament. It's a foreign concept. I would say it's a very American concept. You cannot have everything you want. You cannot, you will not. The people of God go, I want this, but to God be the glory. I want this, but I'll have this in the next life. Are you saying there's sex in the next life? In some way, yes. I don't know what it looks like. Don't even get me started on that. That's a whole different sermon. That's like part 15 of this thing. But in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be finally unsexed. We will be completely connected. We do not get what we want in this life. Our story from the beginning has been a story of longing, and it's longing that's only met when we see Jesus face to face. So allow me to close with what what the Apostle Paul says about this. He says, and I want you to, as I close, this is how I'm closing the sermon, I want you to listen And listen with your soul to this. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. An eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. If we don't get what we want out of this life, if our bodies are even destroyed, we have an eternal house in heaven. This is the hope of the Christian life. Meanwhile, while we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly calling, our heavenly dwelling. Because we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, this body, we groan. While we are in this body, we are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. What we really long for is when God makes all things new. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come therefore church we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body we are away from the Lord for we live by faith not by sight we are confident I say I would prefer to be away from the body and be home with the Lord so we make it our goal to please him We make it our goal on this life to please him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Christian, our hope is in Christ. We might not get everything that we want, but in Christ we have everything that we need. We can be a, f- we are, we are, we, we, as we grow into maturity in our sexuality, we are fully formed humans. And being fully formed humans, we're going to long. All of us will. Married, single, if you have the, quote, call to celibacy or not, if you're just like celibate by nature, like I'm not married, I'm celibate. All of us have a longing. And that longing goes into the next life where it is fulfilled. And so we are the ones who live by faith and not by sight let's pray Lord, I ask God for the wisdom of God for the wisdom of the Spirit of God to come upon this church that we would be given wisdom in the area of sexuality and sex and we need it Lord I believe that we've been so inundated by our culture myself included so inundated that this is so foreign to us God but we need this, train us in righteousness, train us in truth the thing that we long for is found in Christ so God I pray as we sit with this right now there Are some in here with the sexual frustration they might be feeling has turned to really unhealthy ways of fulfilling it and all it does is create more ache, more pain and more longing I pray for that person right now who feels that way. That they would find what they're looking for in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our lover, our friend. I pray for us that maybe in different ways we're acting out, suppressing our sexuality. I ask, Lord, I ask God that we would be able to, even right now, sit in the frustration, the longing, the pain, and through sitting in it, through sitting in that, I ask that we would be filled with hope, that we would be filled, filled with the new heavens and the new earth, that we would be a people that aren't trying, to, that are not trying to fight everything in this life, but we have a, a next life. I pray this for our church now in Jesus' name, Amen.